good to be with you again. My name is Jason Dexter. We are continuing our study of the book of Revelation. Now we are in chapter 2, and we are coming to the third of seven letters which Jesus wrote to the churches. I love going through these letters because in these letters we can find what is Jesus' opinion of the church? What are areas where we are good at? And what are areas which we need to grow in? Each of the seven letters contains criticism and commendation for the churches. Now the church of Pergamum is known as the compromising church. The people, while they maintained their belief in Jesus, in some aspects in their life they were becoming worldly and they were allowing themselves to be influenced by the culture around them. I think the church around the world today is very similar in a lot of ways to the church of Pergamum because a lot of people call themselves to be a Christian, but then we don't always live like a Christian. Sometimes we live more like the world around us. So let us read Revelation 2, 12 through 17 and see what Jesus had to say to this church. Revelation 2, 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let sorry, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So this is the letter written here, it says in verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. As we have seen in previous passages, this angel, the word, means messenger. So this was a leader of the church in Pergamum that was to take this letter from Jesus and then pass it to the whole church. So this letter follows the similar structure that the other letters follow. It starts with a greeting. We see that in verse 12. And then it is followed by some commendation, something the church is doing well. And after that, some criticism, some areas they're not doing well and they need to grow. And then Jesus gives specific counsel intended to address that criticism, what they need to do to fix that problem and grow again. And then it comes at the very end of this passage in verse 17 with a promise from the Lord to the one who conquers. So let's take it from the top. We see here in verse 12, Jesus gives a description of himself as he does in every one of the letters to the churches. And here he says the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus shares a short description of himself with each church. And each one is part of a more full description of Jesus given in chapter 1. Now the specific part he shares with each church is highly relevant to that specific church. Here Jesus mentions that the sharp two-edged sword comes from his mouth. 
Now, the word of God is often described in the Bible as a sword. Jesus' very words are a weapon. His words are powerful. With his words, he created the heavens and the earth. And his words cut into the heart, revealing motives and exposing sin. And we see a passage about God's word here in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So just as his words can create and build up, so his words can judge and destroy. With a word, he can cut down his opposition. Now, why does Jesus highlight this specific character quality of his to this church? He does so because they have gone off the path of safety of God's word. They had allowed the worldly teachings around them to influence them, to deceive them. So they needed to be reminded of the true word of God. They needed to come back to the truth. Now, as believers, we are supposed to be trained in the truth. And we are supposed to wield the sword of the word of God ourselves. But instead of them doing that, Jesus was getting ready to wield this sword against them. Later in this passage, he says, I'm going to wage war against you with the sword of my mouth. They had not learned how to handle their own weapons. So they should have been themselves grounded in the truth and then taking that truth to the world around them. But instead, it was working in the opposite way that the world was influencing them. The world was winning this battle. They were being influenced by culture's ideas around them. Now, this is very different than God wants his church to be. God wants us to be the light. God wants us to be the salt of the earth. We are the ones supposed to influence the world, not the other way around. And we see more on this in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. God actually gives us spiritual weapons and we are to use these spiritual weapons to destroy strongholds, to defeat the lies, the propaganda that the world wants to influence the church with. God has given us spiritual weapons. Now, one of these weapons is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let us be well trained in the use of this sword. And let us use it to destroy false teachings and strongholds in the world instead of ourselves becoming a target of this double-edged sword from Jesus. So do you see, the church of Pergamum was supposed to be wielding this sword and taking the truth to the world to destroy the lies of Satan, to defeat his temptations, and to live an upright, holy life. But instead, they had put down their weapon and they were allowing the world to come in to their church and influence their way of thinking and their behavior 
to slowly make them drift away from the solid truth of God's word and become less and less holy. Now in the world today, many churches have gone astray. Many churches have accepted worldly ideas into the church instead of fighting them. All around the world, we see many churches which are compromising with ideas from this world. So you can think for a moment, what are some areas that the church worldwide allows itself to be influenced by culture? I'll just share one with you now. Evolution. Many churches seek to compromise with this worldly idea. They seek to somehow fit Genesis into this idea of revolution, uh, evolution and somehow mesh the two together. It's not necessary. Creation has much evidence behind it. And we can stand firm on the truth of God's word. We don't need to compromise. Many famous universities of the U.S. used to be Christian universities until they started compromising and compromising and compromising until now they look back and they've come so far from their Christian roots. So Jesus tells the church that I have a sharp two-edged sword. There's a bit of warning there. And if you're not careful, then this sword is going to be used against you. And we move forward to verse 13 where we see the commendation. He says, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. So we remember from the chapter 1, the description of Jesus, that he is walking among the seven golden lampstands. That means he knows everything about the churches. And in each of these seven letters, he says, I know. And then he says what he knows. And that reminds us too, Jesus knows everything about us. And here, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know that the place you dwell is difficult to be faithful to me in. I know there are many temptations there. Now, the fact that Jesus knows the temptations we face is encouraging. It reminds us that he is with us and he sympathizes with the struggles that we face. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us that he sympathizes with us. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You do not face temptation alone. Jesus is by your side. He is ready to help and deliver you if you will turn to him. So on one side, when he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, he's saying, I understand the temptations that you face, and I'm there with you, and I can help you conquer and defeat those temptations. But on the other hand, saying, I know where you dwell, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I know the temptations you face, and it's okay to sin. No, he knows, and he still expects us to live a righteous life. Now, many people excuse their sin by saying, you don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand how hard this is for me. Or they might say, I have no choice. Take, for example, a lack of forgiveness. Someone might say, I cannot forgive that person because you don't know how much he hurt me. But that's wrong. Jesus does understand. He knows exactly what you face. And he still expects you to be victorious. 
So instead of giving up when temptation becomes overwhelming and saying, I can't help it, it's too strong, I don't have a choice, then turn to Jesus. He knows what you are facing and he will give you the help that you need to be victorious. I want to share a bit about the background of why Jesus may have said where Satan's throne is to this church. Now, on the Acropolis in Pergamum was a giant throne-shaped altar to Zeus. So, this was the chief deity among the Greek world. And also, the god most associated with Pergamum was Asclepios. And this is the god of healing. Now, the snake-like form of this false god is still the symbol used for medicine around the world today. The church of Pergamum was established right in the center of Satan's kingdom. Pergamum served as the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. And the city was also built the very first temple to Caesar. There are many pagan cults flourishing there. For example, one of these cults was dedicated to Bacchus, who is the god of drunkenness. So this church is surrounded by every type of temptation and evil influence you could imagine. There were Roman deities, there were Greek deities, there was all kinds of false gods and false idols besides an active Jewish population that would have worked against the church. So, But their war was not only against these visible things, these idols which they could see, but there's also the unseen, Satan's invisible realm of evil spiritual forces. And he and his demons were active in this realm. Could that actually be where Satan himself dwelt and then sent out his legions of demons to accomplish his deceptive and deluding work in the world? Well, we don't know. But at the very least, it was a center for spiritual opposition to the gospel. Now, there's an application for us there. We should be aware of the evil influences around us. There are many demonic and worldly ideas that permeate the culture we live in. We too are dwelling in a place where Satan's throne is. He is sometimes called the prince of the power of the air. This world is under his influence and his evil temptations are all around us. Sometimes, for example, these come through media. And media, little by little by little, gets people uh, brainwashed, gets people to slowly go away from the solid truth of God's word. Take, for example, uh, sexual immorality, which we're going to come to in a moment in this passage. Now, back in the 60s, when there was a television show and there was a husband and a wife, I'm thinking of things like uh, Dick Van Dyke, for example, they showed them as having each one their own single bed in the bedroom. They wanted to avoid even any appearance of any impropriety. Um, they wanted not, people not to think about these kinds of things because these were uh, private uh, private thing for, for marriage. Uh, but as time went on, then that uh, bastion of trying to protect people's minds was slowly eroded away. And before too long, then, it be, then Hollywood started glorifying this idea of falling in love 
and one night stands and sleeping together before marriage and all of these things and started glorifying these things to the point where culture accepted it. And then little by little, they are even pushing that envelope farther now. So the point is being is that the temptations from this world are all around us. We need to be aware of those evil influences in the world. So Jesus says, I know where you dwell. And then he gives them a compliment. He says, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Jesus commends this church. Even in the midst of spiritual opposition and being surrounded by evil influences, they did not give up the faith. The saints did not abandon the church and run to the world. They were still willing to be called by Christ's name even if that meant persecution. That was proved through Antipas, who gave his life as a martyr for his faith. Now, we're not sure who Antipas is, but he was probably a leader or a pastor in the church. So it's quite important, right, that a believer keeps the faith. In fact, you could say easily this is the most important thing for a believer. That's what it means to be a believer. When a person abandons the faith and chases the world, he can't be called a believer at all. Now in today's world, we regularly hear reports of professing believers, often well-known ones, who abandon the faith. Some are disillusioned. Some fall into serious sin. Some are convinced by the ideas the world is selling. And unfortunately, this is the case with many young people in the church. Young generations are fleeing the church in massive numbers. The statistics seem to change a little bit, but I believe it's something like 70 or 80% of young people who grow up in church leave during their years in university. Secular ideas are winning their minds, and they're not holding fast. So I want to encourage each one listening or watching today, hold fast to your faith. Hold fast to your belief in Jesus. Now, Today, in this world, even in the midst of some very small, very little opposition, perhaps the snide remark of a, of a teacher or some hostility among some classmates, many people will give up their faith. If people give up their faith in the face of such small opposition, how about when the real opposition comes? How about when the real persecution comes? Like this church here in Pergamum, like Antipas, who gave his life for his faith. So how can the church address this issue and help the younger generation to hold fast? I hope you'll think about this question for your own church and also parents for your own children. How do you prepare your children to face this world where Satan dwells and help prepare them so that they will overcome it and not be influenced by and not buy into what the world is selling? Now there's an application for us here. Be faithful. He who is faithful in a little thing is faithful also in much. So dig your roots into the word of God. Continuously develop a personal relationship with Jesus. Apart from him, we can do nothing. The stronger your root is in God's word, in the truth, the more firm you will stand when those storms, those temptations come around you. So, so far we've seen Jesus' compliment to the church of Pergamum. He complimented them because they held fast to his name. 
Let's move forward. In the verses 14 and 15, we will see Jesus' criticism. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I have a few things against you. Now, there are many believers in this church. They were holding fast to their belief. And Jesus already said some were holding fast. But that doesn't mean that they were perfect. Some in the church were being influenced by the world. And there were some there who were holding to the teaching of Balaam. We're going to talk for a bit about what does this mean? They're holding to the teaching of Balaam. Now, for the whole story, you need to turn to Numbers 22 and read Numbers 22, 23, and 24. I'm going to give you a bit of a background here. So Balaam was a true prophet. uh, Sorry, he was a prophet of the true God. Okay, And the king of Moab wanted to hire Balaam to curse Israel. Now, Balaam should have said, go away. Completely not interested. I want no part of cursing God's people. But Balaam, he kind of played around with it a bit. He wanted somehow to get a payday. Now, he he did also fear God in some way. He didn't want to directly defy God and curse Israel. But he also wanted the money. Now, Balaam knew also that a curse against Israel wouldn't work because God had blessed them. So if you read the story uh, three times, I think it is that he basically says, no, I better not curse Israel. But finally, he goes along with Balak, hoping to find some way to straddle the fence and get a payday while not directly defying uh, God's will in this matter. But then, uh, so so three times, uh, so he, he tried to uh, make some prophecy against Israel. But then what happened was God directed his prophecy and it ended up coming out a blessing. Balak wasn't very happy. Why am I giving you all this money to just bless the people of Israel? So then Balaam comes up with this idea. Hmm. If the people fall into sin, then God himself would punish them for this. Their blessing will be stripped away. So he came up with a plan to get the people of Israel to fall into sin. And then he taught that plan to Balak, king of Moab. In short, the plan was to seduce the people of Israel. So Moab sent a bunch of women to seduce Israel's men. They held parties, they held feasts, and then these led to sexual immorality. And then that, in turn, led to idolatry. Now it's interesting that if you read the passage in Numbers, you will not see exactly what we see here in Revelation. The story in Numbers is not a complete record of what happened, but here Jesus gives a more full picture. And he tells us a bit of what happened behind the scenes, that it was actually Balaam who encouraged Balak to come up with this plan to try to get the people to sin. Now, Balaam was supposed to be a servant of God, but he didn't stand up for truth. Instead, he used his influence to devise schemes against God's people. He used the worldly influence that was already there, and then he seduced God's people to sin. So it's quite interesting. This wasn't a direct attack against that army. Instead, it was more of a backdoor attack, a subtle attack. 
And that is how Satan often attacks God's people. When he can't come in through the front door, then he comes in through the back one. Now, the Nicolaitans also taught license, which led to sexual immorality as well. More or less, they taught the fact that you could do anything, that you could sin because God's forgiving and he doesn't really mind. So the church of Pergamum was facing the same types of attacks and seduction. Some were tolerating sexual immorality. The world was infiltrating the church. Now, it wasn't a direct, visible onslaught. Satan's method of attack against this church was not primarily aimed at getting people to deny their faith, at least not right off. And so we see something about Satan's schemes. He didn't come into the church and say, deny the name of Jesus, worship Satan. That probably wouldn't work very well. They would see through this and they would kick him out. So instead he comes in and says, it's okay. You know, you can still believe in God, but at the same time, you can enjoy this world. At the same time, you can enjoy these good things. You can enjoy yourself. There's a lot of beautiful men here. There's a lot of beautiful women. Pick one and enjoy. And still maintain your faith in God. So he hoped to get them sinning by lusting after the world. And then once that was accomplished, they would be more vulnerable to other attacks. Now, sexual immorality is one of the top methods of temptation Satan uses against the church. And sadly, it's often successful. Many well-known church leaders have fallen prey to these attacks. Now, the text is clear. Jesus is not happy with any type of sexual immorality. In fact, that he says he wants to go to war with them. Verse 16, I will come to see you soon in war against them with a sword of my mouth. That's very clear. Jesus is not tolerating and not accepting sexual immorality. Now, there are all types of sexual temptation assailing the church. Fornication, adultery, divorce and remarriage for all types of unscriptural reasons, and pornography are not only prevalent, but widely accepted in Western culture. So here's an application for us from this passage. And again, we're always studying God's word with the intent to see how do I apply it into my own life? And that is we must stand strong against these temptations. You must understand that you're in a war. These are the weapons of the enemy. And we cannot surrender. We cannot give in. This battle first takes place in our mind. And you must have the mentality of a warrior that you are in a battle. And you must fight against these impure thoughts. You must fight against these temptations. Every time a lustful thought pops up, we must attack it. We cannot be complacent because it's a war. Take every thought captive to Christ. That means every wrong way of thinking outside of you, in your church, in your family, in the world, we attack those wrong ways of thinking with the truth of God's word and also in our own mind. Your own mind, for example, might tell you it's okay. You're not hurting anyone, so it's fine to do these things. But in fact, you are hurting someone. The pornography industry objectifies and hurts women. It promotes sex trafficking and child trafficking. It destroys lives. It corrupts minds and it ruins relationships. It will rob you of intimacy in your own marriage and prevent you from having a healthy view and healthy relationship with the opposite sex. And what is more, it grieves the Holy Spirit. 
Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He is grieved. When we take our body, which is supposed to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, and then we give in to these impure temptations. And also, Philippians 4.8 gives us a reminder of the kinds of things we should think about to protect our minds. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Being proactive means guarding your heart. Victory is found at the cross. Jesus knows the temptation you face. He knows the culture we're in. He knows those temptations are everywhere, on billboards, on TV, just to click away. And he will help you win. He already won at the cross. So rely on Jesus. Come back to the cross day after day after day. Keep coming back to the cross for strength, for help again and again. And continuously pray that he will transform your mind and desires. He can and he will give you the victory. So on the one side, we need to have the mentality of a warrior to fight this battle. And we also need to come to Jesus as he is our help to get the spiritual armor from him. And at the same time, you can think of some practical ways to guard yourself against purity, uh, guard yourself against impurity and help keep yourself pure. One website I would recommend that you visit is settingcaptivesfree.com. There they offer a great spiritual boot camp for purity. And if you go there, then there will be many good lessons from the Bible, truth from God's word, which can help you. And also testimonies from others who encounter similar struggles. And this can help you to come back to the cross. All right, we are going to continue forward. So we've seen Jesus' commendation that they're surrounded by these influences and culture. They live where Satan dwells, but yet they hold fast. But not all of them hold fast. Some of them have given in to these temptations. Some of them have been seduced by the teaching of Balaam. Some of them have been seduced by the worldly influences around them. So Jesus gives them counsel here in verse 16. His counsel is very simple. Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. All people who have allowed themselves to be soiled by the world should repent. What does repentance mean? It means turning away from that sin and turning to Christ and coming to Him. No matter what you've done in the past, God is forgiving. If you turn to Him, He will forgive you. And He will help set you free from the sin which entangles you. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He would not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you today, there is a way of escape. There is a way of escape. You may feel like there's no hope. There's no way out. There is. Jesus came to save. He came to set free. If you will completely come to him, Day after day after day, 
he will help you. And I also think if you find an accountability partner from uh, some brother or sister around you, then they can also encourage you and help you. Okay, and then Jesus says, repent. But if not, if you don't repent, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. So here's a strong warning against those who don't repent. Jesus is going to wage war against them. His words will be the weapons. These are the people in the church, okay? So these are people who know the Bible. They know the truth. They know the warnings against sexual immorality. And so the words of his that they are so familiar with will be the very ones to convict them for their sin. Scripture itself will be the basis for the judgment against them because they knew what was right and they didn't do it. So you can imagine a scenario where a person who grew up in church or went to church regularly but allowed themselves to be uh, seduced by the world's culture and lived a life of sexual immorality and therefore did, did not come to the Lord for repentance and so on. And they come before Jesus one day. And what are they going to say? I didn't know? Well, then let's, let Jesus may, okay, let's rewind. And okay, here's the sermon. Here's the verses. Here is what you heard. You know these words of mine. And I'm sad to say you didn't do it. Okay, so that's, I think, what it means when it says he's going to come against them with the sword of his mouth. It's not something they don't know. It's the truth of God's word, which they already know, but they didn't do. And that's why we emphasize here again and again and again, not just to study, but to obey. We need to obey God's words and let them to transform our lives. This is a strong warning and one we would do well to heed. We don't want Jesus to come to war against us. So let us not be a friend of the world. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now when a person gives in to a worldly way of thinking about sex, He's making himself an enemy of God. Let us repent. Come to Jesus for help. He's kind. He is compassionate. And he will help you. Okay, so that is the counsel. Repent. And then Jesus ends on a positive note. He ends with a promise. Here in verse 17. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we study God's Word, we should always have an ear to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you as to how to apply this passage. Even now you can push pause and spend a moment in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to lead you to bring to light any wrong way of thinking or acting to your mind and then to help you repent and turn to Him. 
And then he makes a promise to the one who conquers in every single letter in of these seven churches in Revelation. Jesus makes a promise to the one who conquers or to the one who overcomes. Now, what do we need to overcome? In this passage specifically, it's the temptation in the world and especially sexual immorality. We can only conquer through Christ. There is no other way. And then we see there are two promises for those who conquer. First is they will have some hidden manna. Some hidden manna. And Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 6, he gave some background about maybe what this manna is. Okay. John 6, 31 through 35, he says, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. So Jesus identifies this manna as the bread that comes down from heaven, which is in fact himself. He is the bread of life. So this hidden manna, we cannot be 100% sure what it is, but probably it's a reference to Christ himself as the bread of life. And it's a reminder, the world cannot satisfy a person's hunger. People chase sex as a way to pursue happiness, but it doesn't satisfy. Those who pursue the world's way are left feeling empty, guilty, ashamed, more desperate and lonely than they were at the beginning. Jesus is the only one who satisfies. He has the real manna, the real bread of life. He can fill the void in people's heart that has been there since the time Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden. This is a void that when people were separated from God, it ripped something out of us. And there's a, a void there that people try to fill with this world, and they can't. Only Jesus can satisfy. Now, the other thing that... Jesus promises to give is this white stone with a new name written on it. Now the stone is the medium for the name that's given from Jesus to the overcomer. The stone might show the permanence of this message. The one who receives such a message can keep this as a keepsake forever. So here we see a very important character quality about Jesus. He wants a personal relationship with every person. He didn't just die for the world in general, but he died for you and for me. He wants a personal relationship with each one of us. Now I think about, well, there's going to be so many believers in heaven, millions, billions of believers, and everyone gets a personal message from Jesus. Everyone has a personal relationship with him. It's not just Jesus died for the world, it's he died for you. Attention is given to every individual because he cares for us as individuals. What a special day that will be when we receive our customized message from our Lord himself. 
And it will be so personal, this text says, that no one else is allowed to even see or know what he wrote to us. Only those who overcome receive it. So let's finish with some application. Next time you're tempted by the world, remember these promises. Jesus will wage war against you if you ignore his word and go your own way and follow the temptations in the world. On the other side, if you conquer, if you come to him and receive help from him, then he will bless you with manna. He will bless you with spiritual food. He will satisfy your longing. And you can have a personal relationship with him, symbolized by this white stone which he will give you. Which one do you want? I know which one I want. So let us be encouraged today to stand firm and to hold fast in our faith. And instead of allowing the world to come into the church and into our Christian families and into our minds and influence the way we think and influence the way we act, let us instead stand strong on the truth and take the truth to the world, holding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and using it as a spiritual weapon to conquer the temptations in the world. To see our entire library of over 800 Bible studies, please visit our website at www.studyandobey.com.